Welcome to Hope Fellowship. We are uh, starting the message a little bit earlier today because we have communion afterwards. And if you are new with us, welcome. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been going through a, ser- uh, uh, a sermon series called This is the Church. And today we've come to the end of that series. And today we're going to talk about dealing with sin, particularly dealing with sin within the Christian community. It's a, it's a weighty topic, but the Lord wants us to address it. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 18. We're going to start in verses, uh, verse 15. I'll read through verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord, and you may sit down as we come to the Lord in prayer now. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for those truths that we just sang earlier, that you are holy. You're holy, holy, holy. And Lord, we ask that today as we come to your word, this somewhat difficult text We're grateful for it. We're grateful that you give us this truth, but we pray, Lord, that you would humble us, allow us to receive your word with gratitude and gratefulness, and that we would apply your word into our hearts. So we pray that you would do a mighty work amongst us today. We pray that in in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you haven't noticed, in our world today, it is unfashionable to talk about sin. If you see a public figure that has committed a moral failure, most of the time the words that you'll hear out of that person's mouth was, I I committed an indiscretion. I didn't live up to my standard. I failed in some way. But rarely will such a person say, I have sinned. Well, what is sin? Sin is missing the mark against the standard that God has given us in his holy word. It is a personal offense against a holy God. Sin is disobeying God in our thoughts and in our actions and in our very being. And throughout the Bible, God's word affirms that sin, first and foremost, is against him and only secondarily against other people. 
But this cavalier attitude towards sin is not just in the world out there. It's also found oftentimes in here, in the church community. Many times we have sin in our lives and we find unhealthy ways to deal with it. Maybe you can identify with some of these ways. We minimize our sin or rationalize it. We think, well, it's, you know, it's really not that bad. Or we justify our sin. That person deserved it. They had it coming to them. We can even spiritualize our sin. We can think, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. What's a little more sin? We can couch sin in our very personality. We think it's part of who we are. We just say, well, I'm short-tempered or I'm a talker rather than saying I'm committing the sin of anger or gossip or slander. We can deflect sin away from us. Well, you don't know how I was brought up. You don't know my upbringing. And on and on and on. But friends, God's word shows us that sin is serious. It is like a spiritual cancer that is destroying our souls. So we can't take it lightly. We can't just ignore it. We can't just hide it and pretend it's not there. Because, friends, sin never dwells within you peacefully. It always seeks to destroy. It is irrational. It will never fulfill its promises. Sin promises to give you quite a lot of pleasure and etc. It will never fulfill those promises. And so, as his community, as God's community here, if we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we have been forgiven of our sin if we have trusted in Jesus. But the reality is, sin still dwells within us. We're still fighting sin until Jesus comes back. And the question before us today is, what do we do with indwelling sin within the body, within Hope Fellowship? What do we do when that happens? If we're going to be a healthy church, which Hope Fellowship, we want to be an increasingly healthy church, we need to be a church that confronts sin among us. And that's what this word today from God's word is going to show us. But before we get into the actual text, I need to make almost this big caveat, parenthesis. And we need to understand the context in which these words were written. It's a, it's a major Bible study tool. You always want to know the context if you're going to interpret the passage. So we need to know what's going on in all of Matthew 18. And we need to know what type of people God is calling us to be if we're going to ever confront sin in someone else's life. So the big picture, what is God calling us to do in this passage, this core message before we get into who we're calling to be? It's this. Jesus authorizes you to be part of his rescue plan for other believers who are caught in sin. Let me, let me just repeat that. It's a good, if you're taking notes, that would be good to take down. Jesus authorizes you to take part in his rescue plan for other believers who are caught in sin. And our passage today in Matthew 18 is oftentimes the go-to passage on what's called church discipline. And sure enough, later on in the passage, church discipline, what we call church discipline, is referred to in the text. 
But God's plan for confronting sin does not start with the church at large. It doesn't start with elders and pastors. It starts with you as an individual speaking into a fellow believer's life. So that's, that's kind of the context. And within that uh, uh, context of the message, we need to know the context of what Matthew 18 is telling us. So what is Jesus assuming of us as we seek to confront others in their sin? Three realities. He's assuming, first, that you are humble. That you are humble. Early on in Matthew 18, the disciples were asking, well, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? They seem to ask this all the time. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus brings a child and puts them, puts the child right there in front of him, and he says, whoever wants to even enter the kingdom must turn and become like this child. If you just want to enter the kingdom, you've got to humble yourself, be, be like this child. But the greatest among you, that's the one who needs to humble themselves like this child. So the greatest in the kingdom, anyone who's in the kingdom, needs to be humble. It's, humility is part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus. So if we're ever going to confront someone else in their sin... Jesus assumes you are humble. You're not coming trying to beat on this person's life and try to point things out and say, hey, look how horrible you are. You're coming in humility. That's one reality Jesus assumes. The second reality is that Jesus, from this context in Matthew 18, he assumes that you are ruthlessly attacking sin and fighting sin in your own life. So right before our passage, he says these striking words in verse 8 of Matthew 18. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off and throw it away. Why? Because it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to literally cut off our limbs. This is hyperbolic speech, but he's, show, he's proven a point. That sin is serious and sin is deadly. So before you go and seek to confront another person in, your, in their sin, Jesus is saying, I'm assuming you are ruthlessly fighting sin in your life. Remember what the Puritan John Owen once said. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So what does that mean? That means before you go to an approach somebody else in their sin, you are letting God's words search you, the, the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You are confessing sin to God and to one another. You are seeking input from others in your life. You are running from temptation. You are fighting against what you're watching on the internet and et cetera, et cetera. That's the second reality Jesus assumes before we even start to confront another and then the third reality in the context of Matthew 18 that Jesus assumes is that you have a heart full of forgiveness and grace. Right after our text that ends in verse 20, in verse 21, Jesus goes on this extended conversation about forgiveness. Peter thought he was being really good. He said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Maybe like seven. You know, in the Jewish culture, three was good. So he's thinking like, man, this is good. I forgive him seven times. Jesus said, not seven, but 77. Not like you get to 77, you're good, but 77, like don't even count it. You must have, Jesus says, a heart of forgiveness. He goes on to tell the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
And he's saying, we're, if we don't forgive others, we're like the person who has been forgiven the greatest debt imaginable. And then someone has a little debt against us and we won't forgive that. And that is true of all of us who know and love the Lord Jesus. We have been forgiven more than you could ever imagine. We have sinned against the King of heaven. We are guilty beyond belief, and yet God has counted us not guilty when we have trusted in Jesus. So if someone sins against us and we don't forgive them, that shows that we have not actually received the forgiveness of God. So what Jesus is assuming is we are humble, we are ruthlessly fighting sin, and that we have uh, this heart of forgiveness within us. And it's only then that we can now look at the text in front of us. Because if we don't come with that heart, you're going to do a lot of damage to a lot of people. And there's some people in this room that have been damaged when they have been confronted in in just a harsh, unbiblical way from another believer. But that doesn't mean we don't need to follow what Jesus is saying here. We do need to follow his words. So it brings us to our first main point as we're seeking to be part of Jesus's rescue plan for those who are caught in sin, and it's this. We must follow the pattern given to us by Jesus. So in verses 15 to 17, we're given this pattern, this four-step process, if you will. And it's not a checkbox type of deal. Every situation is a bit different, but Jesus is giving us a template to use when we observe sin in the believing community. And we mustn't forget that these are words of our Savior. This is the King of heaven. He is saying, this is how I want you to live in my new community. That's what this whole section of Matthew is about. Jesus is talking about living in his community. And this is what he says. So he gives us this four-step process. Step number one, see that in verse 15, confront the fellow believer alone. So listen to what King Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I just need to highlight some key aspects of this verse so that we get what Jesus is actually talking about. First of all, if if it's he's referring to a he here, it's he or she. If a brother or sister sins against you. But first, let's think about the who. Jesus is referring to this brother or sister in Christ who has sinned against you. So this is not talking about your unbelieving coworker or boss or neighbor who has sinned against you. This is not the process for that, although there might be some principles there. But this is a process for a fellow believer, those who name the name of Christ who are in sin. And then second, the what here. It's Jesus is addressing a believer who has sinned. We talked about that earlier. Sin is missing the mark of God's standard as revealed in his word. This isn't just you being offended because you have a very sensitive conscience, that you are offended that you were not invited to a party where everyone else was. That's maybe an offense, but it's probably not a sin against you. This is a sin that has been committed. And it's instructive to see that Jesus does not designate what level of sin. It's not like... Well, if it's adultery, that's what you got to do. You got to come, you know, address it. If it's uh, this major sin, you got to do this. He is just saying if anyone sins, we got to pay attention to that because little sins 
if there are such a thing, can turn into major sins if left unchecked. So if you're not sure if someone has sinned, if you have been offended in some way, be very careful as you come to that believer. Be very careful in humility and with care. Come to them and say, you know, I believe you may have sinned in this, and here it is. But be open to being wrong on that. But if it is a sin, we're to go directly to that person. Here it says, there's a, this is a fellow believer that the text says has sinned against you. Now, this is a bit technical, and I'm going to not make it too technical. But in the Greek, uh, the against you is in brackets. That means that from all the manuscripts we have of the Greek New Testament, we have no originals, we have all these manuscripts, and that's how we get the texts we have before us. Many people think that those words should not be in the text. And as I've looked at it, uh, looked at the scholarly opinions on it, it does seem that the early manuscripts, the earliest ones we have, the most trustworthy, don't have this against you in the text. So whether or not, it's, it's kind of a judgment call, but as I've looked at it, there is strong evidence to take the more general reading. This is anyone who has sinned. Could be against you, but it's probably just anyone who has sinned, another believer who has sinned. And so here's the process that Jesus is saying. We're still in step one. You initiate. You don't wait for someone like, man, I, I, isn't it obvious they sinned? <laughs> they should have come and talked to me about it. No, you initiate. Go and tell him or her his fault. And then do it yourself. Do it in person. This isn't an email. This isn't a letter time. This is a time to go to a person directly to them. Between you and him alone, Jesus says. And we need to capture the heart of our Savior here. Don't you just love his heart? Jesus is so gracious to us when we sin. He doesn't... When we sin, he doesn't put it on a billboard. He doesn't post it on social media. So everyone's going to be like, hey, look what Eric did yesterday. He is saying, if, if it has become clear that you have sinned and someone else notices that, they're going to come and talk to you privately, alone, small circle, so that it's not going to get out. Small circle of trust. And we see the goal of that confrontation and really of all the confrontations that are going to follow that we're going to talk about in the next verse. It says, if he listens to you, this is Jesus, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if someone has listened, if we've gone to them directly, if they've listened, meaning they see their sin, they've, they will agree with you and, and assumedly repent of that, you've gained your brother. They were wandering from the fold of God. They have sinned in some way, and you have brought them back. This is something to rejoice about. And case closed. So when we're thinking about church discipline, the big word, it just starts with you and I going to one another as we've seen one another sin. And if they repent, it's over. It's over right then. And this is Jesus' heart behind all confrontation of sin. It's, it's that gaining your brother. It's restoration. It's reconciliation. Because that person that you have restored was heading down the wrong path. They were heading down a path to destruction. All sin ultimately leads to destruction. And so the question for us today, the question for you today, for me today, is this. 
Why aren't we doing this more often? Why is this not happening like Jesus said? Why is it awkward if someone comes and approaches you about a sin that they're seeing in your life? Why is it so off limits in much of our Christian community? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of fear. We're afraid of what might happen if we were to go confront someone in this way. Because we've done that sometimes and it didn't go so well. Our relationship has been ruined with the person. We uh, don't want to risk that kind of relational uh, suicide. And so we don't do it. But friends, the most loving thing to do if you really love someone, a brother or sister, is to go and show them the error of their ways. In love, with humility, in the way that we just talked about in the context of Matthew 18. Because sin is blinding. And we can't always see our own sin. We're, we're blind to the, our own blindness sometimes in, in sin. Well, it could be fear. It could also be indifference. Well, I, I don't really care. That's kind of that person's problem. Yeah, they're sinning. I can see that. We, we rationalize, but that's not my deal. You know, I, I'm good with the Lord. And so we're very individualistic in the way that we think about sin and community. And it could be that we just have a lack of community, that you just think, well, I don't have a relationship with that person. I, there's no way I could call out a sin in their life. And that speaks to the question, are you in community? Are you inviting other believers into your life to speak into your life and vice versa? Are you committed to a group of people that are going to help you follow Jesus? Friends, that's why we have church membership. It's a big reason why we have church membership. is because you are committing to a body of believers to say, yes, I want accountability, and I want to keep you accountable to follow Jesus until he comes back. One of the reasons, key reasons for church membership. So very practically, I just want you to think about the last six months of your life. Think about times when you have been sinned against. Something has happened, or just you've seen sin in general within other believers that you know. In that six-month period, how many times have you gone to that person alone, privately, and addressed it with them? How many times? I'm not going to, you don't have to answer, just mentally answer. Now, in that same six-month period, how many times have you seen that sin against you or against others, and have you gone first, not to the person, but to somebody else? Yeah, that's convicting. And that's convicting to me as well. It's so easy to go to somebody else and not to the person. So often the person who has sinned against us or has sinned in general is the last person to know that everyone else has seen this sin and now they're kind of casting judgment on them behind their backs. Friends, if we did this first step, it's a great anecdote to gossip and slander in our community. If we just go to the person directly and deal with it. Well, sometimes step one doesn't end as God intends in restoration, in repentance. That's when he gives us step two in confronting sin in another believer's life. So if you look with me at verse 16, step two, confront with two or three witnesses. It says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Here, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 19, which says that any charge to be established must be done so with the evidence of two or three witnesses to protect people from getting these false accusations against them that one person has taken against them. So Jesus invites us to take one to two others, not to like get your friends and heap, heap on some guilt on somebody, but two to, one to two others who in context are seeking to do this in the Lord's name. We'll see that later in the text. In the Lord's name, in the way that Jesus would do it, they're full of integrity, they're other believers, and they're coming and saying, maybe they didn't see the sin, but they're affirming what this first person is saying. And they're saying, you have sinned. Brother, repent. Sister, repent. Well, here Jesus is showing us that when the matter gets here to step two with the extra witnesses, this is becoming more of a formal charge against the person. It's becoming more serious. And though it's not in the text, the implied off-ramp that we talked about from verse 15 is still there. After these two to three witnesses confront, the hope is restoration. The hope is repentance. But Jesus assumes here that that hasn't happened and they refuse to repent. And that's when he's lays out step three of his rescue plan. And step three, if you look at verse 17, is to tell it to the church. Jesus says if you, he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And you can see that each step of this process is getting increasingly serious, increasingly weighty. More and more people are becoming aware of it. The circle started very small, one-on-one, then one-on-three, or one-on-two, one-on-three, And now it's one on many. Some interpret this, tell it to the church as uh, go before the entire church and tell what the person has done and let the church then respond to this person. So that's how some people take this verse. Others take it as tell it to the church, meaning tell it to those who represent the church, the elders or the leaders of the church. Here at Hope Fellowship, we have not taken a position on one or the other and actually in our bylaws, there are, uh, there's some leeway on this step in the process. I'm, I'm just going to read to you actually from our bylaws because you should know if you're a member that we are committed to doing this kind of process. You should know that uh, and you should know what it says. So this is from our bylaws. It says this, the entire process of church discipline, which again starts with personal one-on-one confrontation, shall be carried out in a spirit of Christian love, care, and sensitivity. We've talked about that. Steps of discipline may include, here at Hope Fellowship, but are not limited to private reproval of a sinning member. That's verse 15. We talked about it already. Reproval between two or three witnesses. That's verse 16. Public reproval before the church. That's here, verse 17. So it could mean coming before the church. It Suspension from communion for a definite period. That's uh, what we're going to celebrate communion here in a bit. It could be saying, and that's kind of the next step that we'll get to, we would ask that you don't take communion for a while. Uh, Deposition from office. That's an interpretation of verse 17 also, like that you're taken out of whatever role you are, and you're you're still maybe a member, but you're not an elder, a pastor, or a staff member. And then termination of membership with possible disassociation and severance of fellowship. That's part of verse 17 we're about to address. The point is that here, when we talk about telling it to the church, there's some discernment needed of 
how that step is carried out here at Hope Fellowship. But the bigger issue is that at this step, in number three, the whole church is involved in some form or fashion. And once again, it's not stated in the text, but it's implied that the desired outcome would be repentance, restoration. The brother or sister saying, yeah, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm coming back to the fold. That's the goal. I just need to remind us at this point, we don't confront sin for the fun of it. We don't confront sin because we enjoy it. In fact, if we enjoy it, there's something wrong with us. We confront sin because we care about one another's souls. We care about their standing before God. That's why we confront sin. Remember God's heart in discipleship or in discipline from Hebrews 12. It says that God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. So church discipline, while painful, when, when operated in a biblical way, in a way that's honoring to the Lord, that would be as if Jesus were doing it, if he were here in his name, always has the goal of the believer's good, to being restored to the church. That is God's heart, and that is our heart uh, here at Hope Fellowship. But unfortunately, sometimes not even this step of church discipline is heeded, and a person will remain unrepentant in their sin. They're going to harden their hearts and continue down that path they're on. Then Jesus lays out a chilling step, step number four. It's what we call today excommunication. So if you look at the end of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Friends, this, this verse should terrify us. Because if a person who has refused to repent when one person approached them, and then they refuse to repent when two or three others approach them, and then they refuse to repent when the entire church, whether it's the elders or the entire church, confronts them, Jesus here is saying the church should consider them as an unbeliever. As far as the church can tell, you are not a Christian if you will not respond to these reproofs individually in a small group with the church, the leaders that God has given, as they're saying, brother or sister, repent. If you don't do so, that is not showing a heart of one who has been redeemed. We can never know someone's heart fully, but it is basically the church saying, we believe you are not a Christian. But even once again, at this step, as hard as this step is, the hope is restoration. Remember what Paul said to Hymenaeus and Alexander in his letter to Timothy. He said, you know, I've handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may taught, be taught not to blaspheme. He wants them to be taught as they're handed over to Satan, meaning put into the world, out of the church, so that they might come back eventually. The hope is always restoration. And friends, I'm, I'm just very thankful that this is not a normal situation. It's not a normal situation that we need to bring someone before the church and they refuse to repent and we need to excommunicate them, whether that means not allowing them to take communion or whether that's uh, telling them they're no longer a member or that they can no longer have fellowship with us. This has not even happened in the 12-year history of Hope Fellowship. And it shouldn't happen frequently because step one should be happening all the time, that we are confronting one another that we're confessing sin, 
And so we're not getting to this level. But it should cause us to fear. Fear what sin does when left unchecked in our hearts and lives. So what are some takeaways for just this section? Then we're going to move to the second section, which will be a little more brief. Here are three takeaways from this section, from these verses. First, take some time this week to recalibrate your perspective on sin. What what does God say about sin? Well, it's deadly and it's destructive and it's so deadly that the Son of God had to die for you and for me because we could not handle our sin on our own. We could not deal with it on our own. Sin is deadly, so serious that Jesus had to die for it. Second, it's it's related to the first, but remember the gospel. So Paul says in Titus, in chapter 2, he says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He's, He's given us We've been given Jesus so that we could be redeemed from all lawlessness, all of our sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this process of confronting sin is a key part of what God uses. It's one part of what he uses to purify us that we might be his holy bride. So we, we must not take this Lightly, It's a key part of what God is doing and purifying us in this process of sanctification. He's making us holy just as he is holy. So remember the gospel. And then third, press into community. Because confessing sin and lovingly confronting sin in one another's lives, it's really hard to do that with strangers. It's really hard to do that with someone you don't know. So press into community. Maybe that's becoming a member at Hope. That's a commitment that you're making. We've got a class and later in February. Maybe it's just inviting another brother or sister to say, hey, would you come pray with me so that we could confess sin together and we would, we would be living this out on, on a real level? Press into community. Well, we've seen now the process involved in Jesus' rescue plan for those caught in sin, and we're all called to be part of it. The second main point that we have here is that it, the confidence that we can have to do this, because who are we to, to do this in someone else's life? And that's what we get in the second half of this text, and that's by remembering Jesus' promise, his promises and his authority. So at times, the the church can just feel very weak when you look at the forces of our culture, when you look at influencing people's lives, you're like, man, what is the church? A lot of people have a low view of the church. Well, friends, yes, right now, the church may at times seem weak, but Jesus promises he is building his church, and the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. This culture, however it's going, that's going to pass away. Jesus' church, that will never pass away. So we mustn't forget the power of the church, what he's doing through the church and the authority he gives to it. So we see some of that authority that Jesus gives to the church in disciplining those caught in sin in verse 18. It says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth 
shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's this kind of an unusual way that Jesus is talking. He only speaks of this way of binding and loosing in two places in the New Testament. Matthew 16, when he's telling Peter, he's given him the keys of the kingdom, and he's saying, uh, I'm going to build my church. And he's talking about binding and loosing, almost the exact same words here in, in uh, chapter 18. And what he's talking about in context of our passage is that whatever is bound on earth, that is, the decisions made to remove a person from communion or in this process of uh, church discipline, it shall be bound in heaven, or literally in the Greek, will have been bound in heaven. Like God is already doing this work in heaven when the church is doing it on earth. The church is operating on behalf of God in this matter. This is Jesus' will. This isn't like hope fellowship or elders trying to punish anybody. This is God's doing when done rightly in his name. And conversely, whenever, whatever is loosed in heaven, meaning when a person is released from that discipline and restored, it shall be loosed or will have been loosed in heaven. God's also confirming that decision and he's already initiated it. So this verse shows us the great power and authority that God has given to his church. And so if you are to ever fall into church discipline, which I hope is none of you, do not take that lightly. Do not think you can just run off to another church and it's going to be okay because there's a church down the road. Because what has been done in this church has been bound in heaven it is serious. Sin is serious. And in case we didn't get the point the first time, Jesus says the same thing in a different way in the next verse. Again, I say to you, verse 19, if two or three of you agree on about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, these verses are often quoted for poorly attended prayer meetings. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, at least we got two, so Jesus is here. And that's true. Uh, Jesus is there in prayer meetings of two or three people. But that's not the context. It, when you're using that verse, you can use it for prayer meetings, but it's really, the context is church discipline. And he, here Jesus is referring back to the two or three witnesses of verse 16, where two or three are gathered. So what he is saying is, when these two or three, if you are going along with two or three others to confront another in their sin, you should be prayerfully doing that. When you're asking anything in his name, you should be praying. And Jesus is saying, when you're doing that, you're doing that in my name as if I were to do it if I were there. I am actually there right there with you. Uh, Jared preached on the Great Commission a couple weeks ago when, when Jesus promises his presence with us. But here... In the context of church discipline and specifically praying as you're confronting someone, Jesus promises to be with you. That should give you great confidence to know that Jesus wants you to do this. He's with you in doing it. Again, as you do it in humility, as you're fighting sin, as you have a heart of forgiveness, but as you do that, he is with you. Well, why is this so important? Why would we even talk about church discipline? I mean, it's like, Eric, you're, you're, you're giving some really hard topics over the last few weeks. Why is, why is this a big deal? Why do we need to address sin? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons, 
But let me suggest four, and then we'll close. First, eternity is at stake. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, eternal death. So when we can bring back someone who is caught in sin, James says that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Lord, help us to know that this is life and death. Second, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the reasoning Paul gives for church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 when there's this horrible sexually immoral situation going on. He's like, why have you not dealt with this? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if we at Hope Fellowship do not deal with indwelling sin within this body, it will spread. People will think it's okay. Oh, I guess I can cheat on my wife. I guess it's okay to gossip in that way. I guess, and fill in the blank. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. Number three, reason why it's important It's a challenging example to others. Because if someone should ever come before this body of believers in church discipline, others will be warned. They will be challenged. We'll all be challenged to not let sin grow into our own hearts and and that we might not get to the same place. In 1 Timothy 5, when it's talking about an elder who's being disciplined, which, by the way, I am subject to this and so are all the elders, When an elder is brought before the church, if they are in sin, uh, it's so that the rest may stand in fear. Say, wow, sin is serious. God takes sin really serious. And then the fourth reason why this is important is because of God's glory. Friends, God is the greatest and highest being in the universe. He has founded the church. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants it to operate as he intends. He's purifying the church, and one way he's purifying the church is through this process laid out, and it is tragic, but there are countless churches throughout America and the world that just disregard this text of Scripture because it's too hard. Don't want to talk about sin. People might be offended. It's not good for the seekers. Well, friends, We are accountable to God, and we need to follow his ways, not what's popular in this culture. So as we close, we must remember that sin within a church community is inevitable, this side of heaven. We all struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. You struggle with sin. But that doesn't mean that sin should be tolerated. It doesn't mean it should be accepted. It certainly means it should not be celebrated amongst us. God has called us in Christ to be his holy bride, Hope Fellowship, his holy bride. He's purifying us for that great wedding feast at the end of the day, at the end of the age, when we celebrate communion in a few minutes, that's what we're remembering, that we are one in Christ, and one day we're going to be with him again. We're going to celebrate again one day. And so let us embrace his warnings about sin. And let us, as Hope Fellowship, love one another enough to fight sin together, individually, in a small group, in a larger group, until he comes with the power that he gives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are kind enough to show us the danger of sin, and you are so kind to give us ways to deal with it. 
And Lord, we know the ultimate way you dealt with sin was by sending your son Jesus to redeem us, to save us. Lord, if there is any here today who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, if they are still guilty in their sin, if the payment has not been paid, Lord, may today be the day they trust in you. But for those of us who have trusted, Lord, we know that there's indwelling sin. And Lord, help us to ruthlessly fight in our lives. Help us to be concerned about our brother and sister. Help us to be one another's keepers so that we might uh, together be purified and be pleasing to you. And Lord, we pray you would do this mighty work in the power of your spirit. Amen.